And uh, we will continue on with our Ezekiel series. And how many of you are excited to dive into this wonderful book of doom and gloom and hope? And that's where you say amen, because praise the Lord. Today we are continuing with our Ezekiel series, and I pray that this morning you will be blessed with the Word of God. My prayer is that you will leave changed, you will leave transformed, you will leave renewed, and that you will not come in, uh, that you will not leave this place the same way you came in, but that you will leave with something uh, deposited in your heart to carry forward, uh, to care, help you carry forward into the weeks to come. Today we are continuing with our Ezekiel series, and we're going to be focusing on Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which will talk about the last battle between good and evil. As we do here in WPA, I want to invite you to stand in the reading of God's Word. This is an amazing thing to do in the life of our church. When we read God's Word aloud, that Word is singing into our hearts. It may be a blessing for us. So we're actually going to be reading from Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 1 to 8. This passage that we're about to read, read is actually a quick summary of both chapters 38 and 39. Okay? I wish we had the time in the world to spend it in chapter 38 and 39, but today we will not be doing that. But we will just focus on this, and we will have the Lord minister to us. So please read with me uh, from Chapter 39, verse 1 to 8. This is what it says. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord." I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned. And the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful scripture passage. Father, I'm reminded this morning, Lord, that when the multitudes were following you for three days, they were listening to your teaching, and yet you felt compassion for them and you fed them. Father, I pray that this morning, may the same compassion that was on Jesus Christ be poured upon us. Lord, our souls are hungry for the word of God. This word brings life to our bodies, and we pray that, Lord, as we dive into your scripture, we pray that you will break it apart and feed us. Nourish our souls. May we be changed today. May we leave this place living full and satisfied and assured in the goodness of our God that we sing. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. 
We pray that you will be blessed and glorified in the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. When we read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 entirely, it reveals a detailed outline of the last battle between good and evil. Over the last few decades, there have been a lot of commentaries on the interpretation trying to decode exactly how these chapters fit into our present modern day. While it is intriguing to go on a personal study to decode how this is unfolding in our present narrative in the world, that will not be our focus for today. Our focus today will be to see who God is within Ezekiel 38 and 39, and how that will impact us, specifically to those who are for him and even for those who are standing against him. And this is important for us as God's children because when we have the correct understanding of who God is, we should and we can conform our lives to that, to live to that right understanding. Amen? This is how we cultivate the fear of the Lord in our lives, by knowing Him and changing our ways that would honor Him. From this passage, there are three things God wants us to remember about Him in the last battle with evil. The first thing I want us to remember is this, that God is the opposer of our enemies. God is the opposer of our enemies. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1 to 4, and chapter 39, verse 1, we will see at the beginning of these chapters that God tells Gog, the chief prince ruling over the nations of Meshach and Tubal, that he is against them and continues to tell them how they will lure themselves into their own destruction. We're not given a clear description of who Gog is in all of the Old Testament, but in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 to 10, Gog is actually inspired and led by Satan to come against the camp of God's people. From this, we know that this prophecy that Ezekiel says is not only rooted in the past, but it is also applicable to the future. And now, cross-referencing Revelation 20, verse 7 to 10, we see that Gog and Magog are a representation of every worldly king and nation that is under Satan's deception to rise against God's people. We also come to understand that the children of Israel, that is also mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when you cross-reference it with Revelation 20, are not those who only identify with Israel ethnically, but also spiritually. For those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah of Israel, are spiritually grafted into Abraham's family making them a part of God's people. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 5, we also see a list of certain nations who have partnered with this ruler named Gog. 
Those nations are Persia, Cush, and Put. While it is very intriguing to figure out who these nations represent in our day and age, the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 want us to think about why God will destroy these nations. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 10 to 12, this is what God's word says. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and, I, and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. This is God's declaration and prophecy towards Gog and the nations that are associated with him. Now, we have to note two things about these nations who are planning to attack Israel during their time of peace. It shows us the reason why God is going to destroy them. These nations that God will destroy are motivated by evil, and their evil manifests in two ways. In two ways. Pride and greed. Let's talk about their pride first. In the passage that I just read to you, Ezekiel 38, verse 10 to 12, notice how many statements of where they will say, I will, are mentioned. I will invade, I will attack, I will plunder. God reveals the true condition of their hearts that is being oppressed by evil thoughts. They are rooted in self-centeredness. The chief ruler named Gog, who, is the New who in the New Testament is associated with Satan, has persuaded these nations to share in his self-centeredness. And their confessions reveal their pride. Now I want you to notice their greed. Notice the words that are used such as plunder, loot, and turn my hand against the resettled ruins. This is their greed talking. They covet and they steal. You know what else is interesting when you notice these Words that are used that I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins. Don't they sound very close to Jesus' description in John 10, 10 of the thief? That the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This serves as a warning to us that these nations who are occupied by evil thoughts are not only being plagued by Satan, they are conforming to Satan's image. And this is a reminder today that the prince of this world rules over our societies with evil thoughts, and he is actively seeking to take our thoughts captive so that we will conform to his image and not to the image of Christ. If Satan wants to gain an advantage over someone, he does it by invading their minds with evil thoughts to make them like him. 
When they give into his deception, not only are they oppressed, but they are cast out along with the judgment that awaits for him. This is why our minds need to be cleansed and protected. When he plants evil thoughts into us, he masquerades them as our thoughts. He will feed our pride and greed with our own voice. Isaiah 14, 14, which is a prophetic reference to Satan's confession prior to his downfall, says this, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Lucifer, the morning star of God, became Satan by thinking and desiring to ascend to the position of the Most High over his own life. His preoccupation with himself and his greed to be like God is the very thing that made him evil. Take note of this, my dear friends. We are always one step closer to becoming like Satan when we take the position of being God over our own lives. Even when he tempted Adam and Eve, he made them feel like God was withholding something from them and that they were lacking something. And all of a sudden, for Adam and Eve, it didn't matter what God told them not to do. What they thought was good became good for them. What they thought was right became right. My dear brothers and sisters, let me tell you this morning, don't let Satan fool you. Don't let Satan fool you. Don't let Satan fool you. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 to 5, we must demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive of every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So, stand with God who fights against our enemy who fights against the prince of darkness and the worldly nations, who fights against our pride and greed. While God stands strongly opposed to our enemies, he wants us to know, and this is the second thing, that God is the protector of Israel. God is the protector of Israel. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 16 to 23, that God involves creation in the protection of Israel and the destruction of his enemy. In verse 16 specifically, we see that God says that he will lure Gog and the nations towards Israel and will plunder them right before the eyes of everyone. And I want you to keep that note in mind. He does this so that Israel will see their God fighting and protecting them at the very same time. Following this, we see that God rouses the entire creation order with an earthquake from the fish of the sea to the birds in the sky and the beasts in the field and all the peoples of the earth 
will tremble at God's anger towards Israel's enemies. And right after this, what you will notice is that God directly and supernaturally destroys his enemies by overturning the mountains, pouring down torrents of rain, hailstones and sulfur on Gog and his troops, and then feeds them to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Compared to other Old Testament stories of how God defeats his enemies, he often works with the medium in between. He provides his people with instructions to obey and follow so that they can ensure victory over their enemies. We can recall the stories of Joshua and the different judges over their enemies. We can think of God supernaturally confronting Pharaoh through the plagues, but even through that story, God calls Moses to be the medium of confrontation against Pharaoh. Yet in this future prophecy, in this future hope, there is no earthly or ethnically Israel leader who is in the middle or a deliverer or commander or king. God takes this role upon himself and he directly confronts the chaos. This is good news for us because I want you to know that God directly still gets involved in our lives today too. That is good news for us. If you're going through something this morning, I want you to know that God is directly involved in your life even today. And we can rely on him. Now, why does he do this? He does this to show off two things, his holiness and his greatness. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 21 and 23. When it comes to God's holiness, God genuinely wants us to see him as a person set apart. The root definition of holy means to be set apart. And what this means, to be set apart, means that God is absolutely and completely different from everything and everyone else. He is pure, unstained by evil and sin. He is the true essence and embodiment of good. When we realize that this is what holiness means, we cannot approach him like we approach everything and everyone else. Nor can we presume nor assume things about him as we do with everything else. When it comes to his greatness, note how he destroys his enemies in verse 21 and 22 of Ezekiel 38. The scripture says that he will summon a sword against Gog on the mountains, and every man's sword will be against his brother. He will literally cause an internal conflict and confusion that they will end up destroying themselves from within. And on top of that, he's going to shower them with torrents of rain hailstones, and burning sulfur, an annihilation of Israel's enemies, of his enemies. In his greatness, God destroys his enemies supernaturally 
without any assistance from his people. Can you imagine this day? Can you imagine the obliteration that the world will see on this last battle? My dear friends, this is the greatness of God. This is the God that we've been singing about all morning. When we think of God supernaturally protecting his people, I need you to believe it with all of your heart today, this morning, that God is always supernaturally protecting you and me in ways we don't notice or even see. He's taking care of us, even now. This brings me to my last point. The third thing that God actually wants us to know about him, that more than he is the opposer and protector of his own people, God is the savior of his people. In Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 7, and even verses 25 to 29, we see this. In Ezekiel 39, we read this, that God will make his holy name known among the people of Israel, and that the nations will know that, the Lord, that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. As we continue reading further into Ezekiel 39, and as we've been reading over these past few weeks of how God is redeeming Israel through their exile, through, this, through, the, through their sinfulness, we see that the defeat of Gog assures the nations that Israel's captivity was not because of God's weakness, but because of his justice. God could have prevented the captivity of his people, but instead he ordained it for his purposes of judging and refining his people to see their need for God as their savior. That Savior's name is Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. So my dear friends, here's an important question that we need to ask ourselves. In the culture and in the time that we live in, do we live in this state of consciousness where we need our Savior? When it comes to the trials and challenges that we face, we are brought to our knees often so that we can call out to our Savior. Yet most of the time, what we often do is we will take the position of the Savior of our own life. And we get into the same problems, to the same things over and over again. Yet the reality is that God wants us to see our need for our Savior. That's what God wants. That's what God wants to see. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up. Ezekiel 38 and 39, the heart of this text, there's a lot of details for the future prophecy and what that looks like and all that means. But the point that God really wants us to see is that God is the opposer of our enemies. He is the protector of Israel, and he's the savior of his people. When we read the last verse of Ezekiel 39, which is verse 29, we see that God says, 
I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. In John 14, verse 16 to 30, Jesus talks about the Father sending another helper who will be with us forever. The Spirit of God will convict us of the world's sin and God's righteousness. God is so faithful, the Holy Spirit is so faithful that he will tell us the way we should not go and the way we should go. And not only that, but he will always be with us forever. This same promise in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 29, where God will not turn his face away means that he is never going to leave us because his spirit is within us. But how is this possible? Doesn't our sin create a separation between us and God? Doesn't our sinfulness cause an absence of God's presence in our lives? Yes, it does. But here's the good news. The good news is that God resolved it by placing the judgment of all our sin once and for all on one man that he sent. And here lies the good news. For God to not turn his face away from his sinful people, he had to turn his face away from his righteous son, the Holy One of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, who took the sins of our world. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ who absorbed spiritual and physical judgment of our sins once and for all so that we can live in God's presence. What happens if you take fish out of water? It's, it's dead. It's not alive. Trust me, I tried it. It doesn't work. My dear friends, I need you to know something this morning. If our souls don't live in the presence of God, we are dead. We are dead in our sins. That's the reality of our spiritual condition. And we have to realize that our sinfulness not only has physical, emotional, relational consequences, but it also has spiritual consequences. Yet Jesus suffered in all those dimensions for us. Physically, Jesus was brutally suffered and died on the cross for our sins that we were supposed to suffer and die for. Spiritually, Jesus was forsaken by God at the cross when he took our sins upon himself so that we would not be forgotten. This is the divine exchange. Jesus took our place and he puts us in his place. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness to put on. We who were enemies of God are now called friends and children of God. This is why Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. No greater love does anyone have than this but to lay down his life for his friends. You and I are friends, my friends. We are his friends. So you know what does that mean? Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Doesn't matter if you're healthy or sick. 
if you have God's presence in your life, the status of you being blessed forever is never going to change. You are always going to be seen blessed in the eyes of God. You don't need to earn God's love because God has given it to you freely. For those of us who turn away from our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one God sent to save us from our sins, we will never be forsaken by God. We will always have eternal life with us. All of our sins and evil are judged on his sacrifice and we will not be judged because we believe in him and are counted among the righteous. For those of us who do not turn away from our sins and do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one God sent to save us from our sins, the judgment of God remains on us. On the last day that we just read, God will forsake us because we forsook the salvation that he offers right now. Right now. So here's the important question that we need to ask ourselves. Who will we be found among on that last day? We read that this passage this morning, that the Lord said, it is coming. That day is coming. And on that day, who are we going to be found among? Will we be associated with the, with the armies of Gog? Or will we be found among the people of God? The nations who were with Gog were unrepentantly swallowed by their pride and greed. They assumed themselves to be the gods, the savior and satisfier of their own lives. And their evil manifested wickedly. And so they are scheduled for God's judgment. Yet the children of Israel, who are God's people, though they sinned, they saw their need for a Savior and received grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. So if you want to experience the salvation of God for your souls that only Jesus Christ can give you, then I plead with you today, if this is the last day you hear me preaching, I tell you this today, please turn to Jesus today. Please turn to Jesus today. Please turn to Jesus today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me pray with you this morning.